right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Sunshine and Brain, part of the Perry Veritas Network podcast, where we have conversations about mental health in the world's most normal and down-to-earth way possible. <laughs> it, it occurred to me after listening to the last episode, uh, you know, 37 times, that, uh, quote-unquote, the world's most normal and everyday way possible is perhaps a little bit boastful. Like, do I really know that the world's most normal? Like, There's probably out there, you know, at least a handful of conversations about mental health that are more normal and down-to-earth than this one and maybe maybe i don't know in the in the trump world i i find myself uh feeling a little self-conscious about you know any statement that begins with the phrase the world's most you know you know like maybe maybe it's time to maybe it's time to start being careful about shit like that but in any case uh, i i'm i'm winding my way slowly to the best possible way to say that if you noticed uh you know as of even a couple episodes i would say something like where we take conversations about mental health and have them in the world's most normal way possible. And something about speaking out loud where you don't really have a chance to edit yourself as you go. Finally, after, you know, 11 episodes, actually 12 episodes in, I'm, I'm finally figuring out that it's no, where we have conversations, anyway, whatever, you know, this is just uh it's just me thinking out loud. But anyway, so this is uh, episode 12. This is a special addendum to the last episode that I recorded, which was a solo episode, Suicide Awareness Month special, where I just kind of talked just me about my particular experiences with suicide, suicidal ideations and thoughts, etc. And then after listening to it, Eric Norvell, who, as you know, is the founder of Peri Veritas Studios, co-founder, that is, with Robbie of Peri Veritas Studios. In fact, there's a conversation between me and Eric early on in this podcast. Episode one, which is really episode two, is a conversation between me and him. And if you listen to my other podcast called Jokes, that's a podcast that Eric and I record together that, that dude has been extremely busy lately, and so we haven't had a chance to record recently, but we're going to get back to it here pretty soon. Anyway, so he listened to the last episode and had some follow-up questions and things he wanted to talk about. And so asked me if we could record a short episode, like 30 to 40 minutes or so, for him to ask the follow-up questions and for me to maybe get more specific or go into more detail you know, here and there about some of my experiences, et cetera, just to kind of illuminate different other aspects of the conversation. And I was obviously really happy to do it. And so he and I had a chance to sit down and record today. And he asked me a couple of questions, gave him some answers, nice little conversation. So that's what this episode is. So I want to get to that in a couple minutes. But first, as always, we try to make check-in uh, an important part of what we do here, uh, just because I really like the idea of, you know, folks really thinking in terms of, Hey, it's it's not never a bad thing to spend time just checking in with each other and you know asking how we're doing and doing a little bit of a dive into what our past uh, few days have been like since the last time we had a chance to talk and to you know really normalize these types of conversations and for me for me there's not a lot different in terms of kind of where I'm at now as opposed to where I was at last week and I recorded the the Suicide uh, Awareness Month special. But, uh, but I do have a couple 
really kind of interesting, funny stories. And uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun to share those here and then and then dive into dive into the episode. So first things first, since the last episode that I recorded, I had I and my dog had a fucking near death experience on Monday Labor Day. Uh, so here's what happened. I like to swim for exercise. Like that's my thing. I love swimming for exercise. I've always done it when I'm in good shape. It's because I'm swimming a lot. When I'm not in good shape, it's because I'm not swimming a lot. It's the healthiest exercise that I can possibly do for a ton of different reasons. Not the least of which being that first of all, they've done studies. I don't know how they've done these studies, but somebody out there has done studies about the effect of water on the human body, especially cooler water on the human body and what it does to you. And it turns out that swimming in a pool or the ocean, water, period, swimming, which happens in water. I don't know why I said it that way. But swimming has a very similar effect as an antidepressant. It just does. It's, it's sort of interesting. And so swimming laps is really good for me because it's sort of like an antidepressant. And the other piece is, look, man, I am six feet and seven inches tall. That will technically... I'm six feet, six inches and three quarters. Go fuck yourselves. For my whole life, I've been saying I'm six feet, six inches tall. And I just don't want to sell myself short anymore. You know, six feet, seven inches. As soon as I put shoes on, I'm six feet, seven inches. So yeah, go fuck yourselves. But anyway, so the point is, is that that's a, that's a tall person. That is a, a, I'm a, I'm a large human being. And us large human beings have to do things like think about our knees, our lower back, things like that, especially as we get older, you want to be, you know, strong and healthy. You want to be able to move around to the best of your ability. And swimming in a pool is, uh, swimming laps is a, is a great exercise that gets to happen in a virtually, you know, gravity free environment. So I'm not only am I getting myself in great shape, but also not doing any damage in the process. So anyway, yeah. So Monday, Labor Day, the pool in my neighborhood was not open. Yeah, bastards. I know. Fucking communist bastards. <laughs> Kept the pool closed. And it wasn't because like of fires in Southern California, that's going on. It wasn't because of it was just because the office was closed. There was nobody around to open the pool. And so that's it. It was closed. So I didn't have a way to exercise. So by the time Monday afternoon rolled around, I was like jumping out of my skin, man. I, you know, I, I live in my head a lot. And so getting in my body is a, is a really important thing for me to do. And so I was trying to think of like, what do I do? What could be a good activity to get myself out there? You know, what do, what do I do to kind of get in my body a little bit? And I had the idea of going for a, like a somewhat strenuous hike with my dog. So there's this mountain near me in the San Diego area called Iron Mountain. It's like 20 minutes from where I live. And it's a dog-friendly hike. And I'd done it before, but I hadn't done it in a while. And so I was like, hey, let's go do that. That'll be fun. I'll do it for a couple of reasons. One, it's good exercise and it's dog-friendly. So me and my dog could get out and have a little fun. And the other reason is I thought, you know, when I summit the mountain, we've got this, we've got fires all over California right now. And there's a big one about 30, 35 minutes southeast of me. And like the whole sky is covered in smoke and it has been for about a week at this point. And it's just pretty fucking awful. And, and when it was first starting, you know, you could really see a plume of smoke of smoke going up into the atmosphere, like a, a, a well-defined plume of smoke. And, and then 
by Monday and including today, it's just smoke across the, I mean, you can't find the plume. It's just smoke going over, going over the sky. So I thought, Hey, let's go summit the mountain. Maybe I'll be able to get a good view of it and then kind of see and sort of see what's going on. So this was a good idea. Right. And I actually contemplated, I was like, so I'm going to bring my dog. I'll make sure to get some water for her. I'll get some, you know, Gatorade for me. We'll do all that stuff. And then, you know, Oh wait, should I, should I listen to music? Maybe I'll bring earphones. No, no, let's not do that. No earphones. I just want to hear the sounds of nature and it'll be more fun just to, you know, go without earphones. So that's what I did. So we get started on the hike. It's like two and three quarters mile up to the top of the mountain, another two and three quarters mile or so down to the bottom. So it's like, like five and a half miles altogether or something like that. Going up is obviously a lot harder than going down. And so we're kind of making our way up and we, there's, it's about a mile and a half or so until you start actually you know, getting to the part where you're really going up the hill. So we kind of get to this spot and my, my dog shadow is starting to sort of really pant. And I wanted to make sure she had enough water. You know, she didn't know we were going on this, so she didn't necessarily fully hydrate. You know, So we kind of pull off to the side of the, the side of the pathway there for a couple of minutes, take out her bowl, give her some water. You know, as soon as I see she's got enough water going, you know, we, we start going on our way again. So we take about three or four steps along the path. When all, all the, all the, all of the fucking sudden I hear right on the ground next to me, this sound that was utterly terrifying. And it was like the sound of a fucking rattlesnake. And I looked down and a foot and a half from my feet on the path on my left hand side is an adolescent rattlesnake hissing at me, coiling up. And getting ready to bite the fuck out of my ankle, which, by the way, I I had chosen to go on this hike with sneakers and ankle socks. Yeah, yeah, sneakers and ankle socks. So I, I, I was like, I looked at the snake. I was like, Jesus Christ. I swear to fuck, Shadow said, Jesus Christ as well. Like both of us said, Jesus Christ at the same time. And then, thank God, I had had her on the right-hand side of me. So this, I was between the snake in her, you know, and I just jumped out of the way. I kind of jerked her out of the way and then pulled her along and then bounded up the, up the path kind of as quickly as possible. And then just kept fucking going. Like didn't even stop to turn around in retrospect. I was like, man, I should have stopped turning around and taking a picture, whatever. No, fuck no. In that moment, I was like, just keep going, just keep going. And uh, nearly gave myself a heart attack. I mean, that was like, a loony, loony moment. That's the second time that there are rattlesnakes in San Diego. Uh, there are apparently a lot of rattlesnakes in San Diego. I have seen my fair share of coyotes around here and heard them. And I've only seen a rattlesnake one other time here. And it, it was in the scariest place possible for a rattlesnake to be, which is to say coiled up in the middle of a playground with children playing there. And I was there with my daughters. And it was one of those moments of, Oh, that's a, okay, girls, uh, we're leaving, <laughs> you know, and just put them in the car and go. I had never seen a rattlesnake in person like that before. And from what I understand, and I'm no rattlesnake expert, but apparently the most dangerous time for rattlesnakes is the spring when they are freshly born because baby rattlesnakes, first of all, they don't warn you before they bite you. They just bite you. 
And second of all, they don't know how to like ration their poison. So they bite you and then they just give you all of it. And then as they get, as rattlesnakes get older, they're not so eager to bite things that they don't want to kill. And they'll usually go a long way to sort of warn you with the rattle beforehand. And if they do bite you, they're going to give you just enough venom that it's going to fuck you up. But it's not necessarily going to kill you because they're wanting to save the venom for animals that they want to actually kill and eat. So this was an adolescent rattlesnake because this is an autumn time (laughs) rattlesnake. It was not a big one. It was a little one. And it was right there in the path. And I guess I'm very lucky on a lot of different levels. First level being that, first of all, it had lived long enough and learned enough to coil and warn me with its rattle before it just bit me. Like if this was a springtime hike, I think it might have just bit me. And the other piece was if I had had my earphones, which I thought about bringing, I might not have ever even heard it. So that fucker would have bit me and I wouldn't have even known. And third thing is, if I had my dog on my left-hand side of me going up that hill, then it would have been my dog between me and the snake. And I think it would have bit my dog. And whereas, you know, I'm, you know, 215 pounds, you know, and six foot seven, as I said before, (laughs) I don't know if it would have killed me, but it would have, it would have been a problem. It would have been a problem. But if it bit Shadow, a 40-pound dog, it would have killed shadow for sure. So we just went up, I, you know, we just kind of kept on going like, you know, and, and passing people sort of on the way down saying, Hey, uh, keep an eye out, you know, <laughs> like made friends with everybody on the way down. And then the rest of that hike was terrifying. You know, it was like constantly just like, I'd like to look around and enjoy the view as I go up, but I'm just going to go ahead and keep my eye on this path because that was really, really terrifying. <laughs> so, and then because of the near-death experience, I like got to the top of the mountain, you know, it was just like thinking about life, you know, it was like, should I, should I live here now? Is this just where I live now? Do I ever want to go back down the hill? Well, thank God by then, like enough people had gone up and down the hill. I sort of figured that probably the snake got scared off and I didn't see the, see the damn thing on the way down. But when I, when I got up to the top, I was like, man, that was terrifying. I ended up like sending a, sending a message to someone on uh on instagram (laughs) i kind of been sort of like thinking about and stuff like that and so uh there's a really funny moment up there just sort of like uh, decisions decision making that happens when you just had a nde as they say a near fucking death experience (laughs) so so that was my monday and then uh i was supposed to give blood today as i'm i'm o positive as my blood type and so what happens is, is that once uh, the uh, blood bank, like the Red Cross or in my case, the California blood bank discovers that you're o-, o positive, those fuckers turn into vampires. And I don't have any problem with doing the apheresis machine, you know, the spinning machine. So it, it takes, it's a, they take your platelets. So they take your blood out and they put it in a spinning machine and they separate out the red blood cells and they give you back the clear plasma. So it's like one sort of, cord going out from your vein and then it, it sort of reverses direction every couple of minutes and sends this clear fluid back in and then pulls out the blood again and sends clear fluid back in. It's 
it's a pretty cool thing and they can use it a lot more. And since I'm O positive, especially now during COVID, apparently my blood is especially helpful. And uh, generally speaking, my blood is helpful. So any chance I get to go and get blood, I'm going to go do it. And I was supposed to do it today, as a matter of fact. But they called me to check up on me and they said, okay, you know, we're just confirming you're coming in. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming in. But just out of curiosity, just because I don't remember, just so you know, I had dental surgery like two weeks ago. So am I still allowed to give blood? And they said, maybe what was the surgery? And I said, well, I had a cavity. They extracted the tooth and then they put in a stud. And they said, oh, okay, well, that may or may not be a problem did they do a bone graft? And I said, yeah, they definitely did a bone graft. And then, get ready, here's the kicker. They go, was it synthetic bone or cadaver bone? Meaning, was it like made up bone created in a lab or bone from a dead person? And I was like, I'm thinking lab because if they told me cadaver, I'm pretty sure I would have remembered that because that's horrifying. (laughs) It's like so disgusting. So they were like, well, you got to call and find out because if it's one or the other, that's going to depend on how long it is until you're able to give blood. And I was like, all right, no problem. So I call my oral surgeon and I was like, hey, weird question. I'm supposed to give blood this weekend. They wanted, I know he did a bone graft. They want to know, was it synthetic bone or cadaver bone? Please tell me it was synthetic bone because that's gross. And they said, no, it's cadaver bone. So, uh, yeah, I have uh, a dead person's bone in my face, everybody. <laughs> my fucking face. So I like, I spent like two solid days horrified <laughs> by that idea. I'm more used to it now. It's less of a problem. But two solid days, completely just blown away and horrified <laughs> by the idea that uh, there's a dead person's bone in my face. Who was this person? You know, like what kind of life did they live? Am I going to develop, you know, uh, different personality traits now? <laughs> like suddenly I speak Russian. You know what I mean? Like, am I going to start liking foods I didn't like before? or 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 is this like... Like the spirit of this person's now going to be like endowed in my, in my jaw. And like, <laughs> I don't know. This feels like a plot to some crazy ass science fiction movie. But, uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the other thing happened. That was, uh, that was really, really weird. So yeah, the, uh, the, the, the jogging of the kind of mind with experiences like that are, are, are really, really funny and interesting. Uh, But the big thing I'm thinking about right now more than anything else is, you know, we're about halfway through September, almost there. It's the September 12th now. Uh, I guess there's really two things I'm thinking about right now. One is that, yeah, today is September 12th, 2020. I was living in New York, New York City, Manhattan, on September 11th, 2001. And so we mark the 19th anniversary of 9-11 this year. Next year, it'll be the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which, first of all, that's fucking bananas. The whole idea that it's been that long since then is crazy pants. I mean, I just I can't believe that that much time has passed by. And I have a couple of thoughts about 9-11 and that whole experience that are really kind of sticking with me right now. 
The first is just how absolutely intense that whole experience was, just the memory of that, you know. It's one of those days that will stick with me forever. And there's no question in my mind that those memories already from almost 20 years ago are as fresh as they were when it happened. You know, I, I was living in a studio apartment on 93rd Street and 2nd Avenue, so Upper East Side. I was just starting my second year of rabbinical school, and I was just waking up in the morning. I had class kind of later on, and my ritual at that time, because I didn't have any television, because television sort of has never been a big deal for me. I have a television... I have a television now, but it never gets turned on. But uh, I was listening to news radio. And when I turned the radio on, the first plane had already hit. So I turned the radio on and they're already talking about the first plane and what was going on. And, and it hadn't, it's, you know, there have been planes that have crashed into skyscrapers in New York before. They didn't understand that it was a passenger jet. They just knew that there was a plane crash in the, in the skyscraper because if you remember when that first plane went in, it left like a plane imprint on the side. Like you could tell that it was a plane that crashed in there. And as I listened to the news, the second plane hit. So, you know, I heard on the radio the reaction of the folks when the second plane hit. And I remember feeling my first reaction internally was ang anger of like, what the fuck are these pilots doing? Like, how are them two? And then it suddenly dawned on me oh, this is terrorism. And I don't know if that was sort of creativity on my part or the fact that I had been living in Jerusalem for an entire year before during a year when it was, there was a lot of terrorism that year. And so I just kind of knew, oh, okay, this is, this is terrorism. So in a confused kind of frantic state, I remember, you know, throwing myself together, calling a buddy of mine, where are you? I'm, I'm here, I'm, you know, down at school what's going on, you know, and, and he, he said, hey, could you maybe go down to my apartment? My, my wife is there alone. Um, so you could maybe sort of be there with her and sort of comfort her. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. Kind of threw myself together, walked out. Back then in the early 2000s, there was this shoe fashion that no longer exists where people were wearing clogs, which are sort of like shoes with a front, but no back. They were like slippers, but the, the front part kind of covered all of your toes and then went back sort of half your feet. And then the rest, there was no back to your shoe. And I had a pair like that. I don't know why I chose to wear that out, but I just wore those shoes out, which wasn't the smartest thing. Like I should have just worn sneakers if I knew how much walking I was going to do that day. And so then walked down from my apartment to my friend's place, which is about 25 block walk or so, uh, a mile and a half, maybe two miles, something like that. And I remember seeing the smoke kind of going across the sky because uh, the buildings at that point were still up. They hadn't fallen. And then I remember walking down to my friend's place, going up to the apartment, and then me and my friend's wife kind of had the news on. And then you could see the buildings off the from their balcony, sort of, if you can imagine. I mean, the high enough buildings in New York, you can see pretty far. And you could sort of see the Twin Towers from the balcony. And when those buildings fell, we both of us could kind of glance out the window, glance out the balcony there and see them falling in real life. 
and then look back on the news and see him falling on the news and kind of just sort of go back and forth and see it happening in real life on the news, real life on the news, et cetera. And it was this immediate thought of the first building went down and it was so mixed up in smoke. I was like, I think the building just fell. And she was like, really? Cause I, and I was like, no, you can't see it there. I think it fell. And then the second building fell and it was just fucking obvious. And we were completely shocked. I mean, I remember my first thought was, I just watched 50,000 people die. It's the fact that only 10,000 people died when you at any moment would have 100,000 people in each of those buildings is fucking astonishing. I mean, it speaks to just how thorough and miraculous that rescue effort was. And 10,000 people is a lot of fucking people. But when you think about how many could have died that day, it's a shockingly small number in comparison to anything, anything else, you know. So uh, that was um, that was a really kind of stunning thing. And then and then just feeling this drastic need that I had to do something coinciding with this other feeling of, oh, fuck the whole world has just changed and we are going to be living this for the next 20 years. You know, that whatever this is, this is going to have a huge impact on the world for the next 20 years, if not more. And that was the feeling that I had. And I remember, you know, my friend's wife then needing to go to her work and sort them things out. My friend being on the way up. So we kind of went our separate ways and then just leaving the apartment and desperately feeling the need to just do something, anything, anything that I could think of to try to help out. So I just started fucking walking South. I wanted to see how close I can get to those buildings to, to try to make a difference. You know, I'm not married. I don't have any kids at that time. I'm a young man, so I can get out there and try to do something. And I remember being amazed that I was one of the only people walking south, that everybody's walking north. I and mean, everybody left Manhattan and went home on foot that day. Like people walked home that day, some 20 miles, if not more, just walked home that day. I remember just walking south and south. And the further south I got and the further along I went, you started to see people walking north who were clearly there. You know, I, I, I can still in my mind see ashy faces, which are really just faces covered in asbestos. You know, um, occasionally you see somebody who is ashy and bloody as well, walking north with just dazed look on their faces, just the scary, scary look on everyone's faces walking north. I mean, that, that memory is as clear as anything. Uh, meeting up with a friend of mine who I'd worked with at a summer program that summer, and just together deciding, let's just go maybe give blood and found our way to a place where they were, they were, you know, giving blood and then getting online. And there were people lined up fucking around the corner, down the block to give blood. Right. And, and, and people were coming out and saying, I'm sorry, thank you so much for coming with your donations, but we're inundated. We can't take any more blood right now. And then just that feeling of horror, understanding that whoever was going to survive that day, had basically already survived that day. I mean, they did pull out a handful of survivors from that, but only a small handful. By the time those buildings went down, there really weren't going to be 
a large amount of survivors anymore. And so that's, that's what it was, you know, just this awful, horrible, horrible experience. And then something really interesting happened. And this is a thought that I had, you know, in terms of today, right? And this actually is something that I heard someone else say, and I think maybe it was Van Lathan on his podcast, part of the Ringer Network that he does with Rachel Lindsay called, um, fuck, what's it called? I should, I want to just plug this podcast. It's a really good podcast. And so if you have a chance to listen to it, I definitely recommend listening to it. So Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay in a podcast called Higher Learning. I recommend it. It's a good podcast. And they talk a lot about social issues and things like that. And definitely strongly recommend that podcast. And he made the point, which is right on. This country does not need another September 11th. This country fucking needs another September 12th. And what he means is, is what it felt like to be an American human on September 12th. You know, after I realized that I, there was nothing for me to do, eventually I made my way back to apartment, my apartment, and I went to sleep. But I went to sleep with the plan that a buddy, another rabbinical school friend of mine and I were going to wake up really early the next morning, and we were just going to walk as far south as we possibly could. And as rabbinical students, to try to see if there is any need for like chaplains down on ground zero. And so went to sleep, woke up the next morning, was a lot smarter in terms of my choice of shoes and um, left at like four in the morning to go meet up with a friend of mine to go and try to figure out if there's a way that we could help. And what I remember is getting on the subway at like 4.30 in the morning and being alone in the car, except for me and this homeless dude. It was like me and a homeless dude. And I remember looking at him and he looked at me and I kind of gave him a look that was like, hey, you all right? And he was like, yeah, you all right? And I was like, yeah. And it was like this weird bonding thing where, I mean, this is fucking New York City, man. Like, if you're not a New Yorker, it's hard to understand, but y'all have heard, you know, you, you don't talk to people in New York City. You know, ask somebody what time it is and the answer you're going to get is go fuck yourself, right? I mean, it's not, it's not a friendly place like that. Or it's friendlier than it seems because how New Yorkers express friendly is just different than the rest of the world. But this moment of me and this person who we would never talk otherwise, let alone look at each other, let alone check up on each other. But we did, we checked up on each other in that moment. And just what it felt like, you know, how quickly all the American flags went up, how quickly there was no longer going to be a border between liberal and conservative, left and right, black and white. We were all Americans in that moment. Someone else had attacked us and we were going to get them. And that's, that unified us. You know, it was this crazy sort of feeling. And then ever since then, it's kind of been dismantled. And how interesting that here we sit now six months into a worldwide pandemic that our nation has perhaps had the most difficult time of all the nations dealing with. And um, there's no unity, right? I mean, we are on the precipice of the most divisive and important consequential election in maybe American history. Certainly recent American history, maybe the past 100 years, the most consequential election. And we're so divided, it's, it's really hard to understate, you know. 
So yeah, 19 years later, looking back, I mean, that's my main thought. Totally agree with Van Lathan. We definitely don't need another September 11th, but we sure as fuck could use another September 12th. And then the other thought that I have right now, you know, sort of beyond all that other stuff is here I sit really in the middle of September and I'd set this uh, kind of, you know, dating, um, you know, this dating moratorium for two months. And I've got about two weeks left, about two and a half weeks left of, of that. You know, I said to myself that on October 1st, I would start looking for love again and start trying to kind of make that happen, bring that into my life, you know, and recognizing that it might be a little bit crazy to consider, you know, finding someone to date just a month away from, again, that incredibly divisive, consequential election. And yet also, why the fuck not, right? It's never, never too early or too late to try to find the thing that you want the most. And as I've said before on the pod, that's the thing that I, that I want the most. So this is the time for me to, you know, really look around and see what, what else, what else do I want to do during this time? What are some of the other things that I need to do to kind of get in order and making that list and checking it off and moving in that direction. And then also really thinking about what I want from love, you know, what's, what are the feelings that I want and all that stuff. So that's the other place my mind is. I've already been doing this intro for a little over 30 minutes at this point. So I'll save it for another episode to kind of go into more detail about love and everything else. But for now, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of where the mind is at or all those, all those pieces. So a couple of fun, a couple of funny stories, a little quick reflection on my experience with nine 11 and, uh, and thoughts, thoughts about the future. So, all right, look, you know, as usual, you know, like, and, uh, um, please subscribe to the pod, please share it with as many people as you possibly can. That would be really, really helpful. I keep forgetting to mention every single episode that I do have a Perry Veritas email address. Very simple, just Josh at periveritas.com. You know, feel free to write me there anytime with questions you want to, you know, join in on the conversation, et cetera. Uh, Eric, because he's founder and because he's, he's a great friend, has a chance to join in on the conversation here. And so that's what this podcast is. That's what this particular episode is all about. But I want you to have that opportunity, too. And so, you know, any question you might have or any anything you'd like me to talk about or any point you'd like to make, please feel free to just go ahead and write me there. And I'll uh, I promise to read your email on the podcast and respond and uh, include you in the conversation along those lines. So, uh, yeah. That's it for now. Without any further ado, here's a brief little conversation between me and Eric expanding upon uh, my special episode about uh, suicide, you know, sort of giving honor to Suicide Awareness Month. This is a Suicide Awareness Month special and addendum with the founder. Hope you enjoy it. So uh, what's up, man? Uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I wanted to come in and talk to you about your, um, last episode of uh, sunshine and brain, which was the suicide prevention month episode. It was a good episode. Yeah. Thank um, you. it was only Josh Burroughs talking yeah, about things. There was no guest, um, except insofar as you are, you know, your own, you know, you have your multifarious, uh, aspects to your personality 
multi multi nefarious would be the more appropriate uh, way of putting it. There, it's multi nefarious. Multi nefarious. Yeah, <laughs> it's nefarious on multiple levels. <laughs> I, 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 unless there's something I don't know about you, I'm, I, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, you're probably but, right. <laughs> but I, fe- I thought it was really interesting, and I thought it would be interesting to follow up on just a, some of the, you know, a few of the things. Just talk very briefly, yeah. maybe elucidate a little bit more on the the motivator behind it. If anyone has talked to you besides me, um, by the way, this is Eric Norvell. Um, of Perry Veritas. I chime into shows every once in a while. This is going to be occasionally jokes, but I'm not that funny. <laughs> so that, that, that doesn't work that much. And it's going to be in the show notes. They're going to know it's you and I'm going to have an intro. So you don't have to like introduce yourself or anything like that. It's not like a radio show. I mean, I know you're a suit and you're the boss, you know what I mean? Like the, you're the founder, right? But like, that's all going to be there. <laughs> Sometimes I have to remind myself who I am, so it's yeah, not just to say it out loud. If you don't toot your horn, sometimes there's no music, right? Well, maybe it's more like daily reaffirmations. Like I am <laughs> good enough, I'm smart enough, and, and I don't really care if people like me or not. That that one went out the door a long time ago. Sure. But, so, you, you know, tell me if you heard any feedback from anyone who's listened to the show. I mean, I know you, you yeah. have friends that have talked uh that that listen to your show pretty regularly i know you've been working with your friend andre on some shows and we've posted them here on sunshine and brain give give me a sense of what has been said to you and then we can follow up on some of my questions sure i mean uh, all the feedback i've got from friends is has been you know incredibly positive i mean obviously you know, Andre and I go back 30 years and, you know, love each other a lot. It's not like we, when we talk, we sit down and share every single gory detail of the painful and challenging moments of our lives. You know what I mean? And we kind of have to, like a lot of times friends do, you kind of have to remind yourself um, about the struggles that a person can go through just so, just so you, you know, can be cognizant of that stuff. Cause it's so easy to just, shoot the shit as friends that you don't always talk about sort of the serious stuff. So, I mean, he, he's, he certainly has known that I've struggled. I, I've never talked him through all the, all the really challenging stuff, but he's certainly known that I've struggled. And uh, a recent interview, Kathleen is the person who I talked to quite a bit as well. And both of them, you know, were obviously very supportive and loving. My, my family are the ones that, you know, I'm, I'm just curious if they, I, I don't think that they do, like my sisters, my mom has a very strict never listen policy placed upon her head. Like I just told her, you're, you are not to listen to any of these podcasts ever. Just because she she gets very anxious and um, and her anxiety is not particularly helpful for me, at least, you know. And so for her to be listening to this shit and then to be all over it with her anxiety is just not helpful for anyone. So she's got a pretty strict please never listen thing. And actually, to be honest, I'm not sure she would even know how to find it if uh, if she wanted to. That's one of the benefits of working with a newer technology that older people just don't know how to have access to. Not that she's old, but old enough that, you know, how to find it, I think, would be confusing for her. But, uh, you know, uh, those two are the only two that have really listened. You know, I, I have gotten some, you know, sort of feedback from other folks who have said, you know, that they found the podcast in general, not necessarily that specific episode, but the podcast in general, very positive. 
And, you know, I'm not even sure how many listeners I get. In fact, I haven't asked you that question in a long time because I've just decided not to focus on it. But I, if I was to guess, I would say that maybe I'm getting more listeners than I did in the past because former congregants of mine from old congregations are starting to kind of pop up and say, hey, I've been listening to your podcast. It's really nice to hear your voice again. Very cool that you're sharing a lot of this stuff. Thank you for doing that. So this guy I used to work with back in D.C. who um, was a youth advisor out there, very, very good friend of mine, just an awesome dude. He had reached out to me and said, hey, I've listened to the pod. It's great. You know, just kind of slowly making, way, making my way through. Podcast listeners like me and you, you know, we're kind of used to plugging into a thing that's like two and a half hours long, three hours long sometimes, you know, like not every podcast is that long. But if you listen to Joe Rogan or, you know, I love like uh, hardcore history where every episode's like five and a half hours long. That's just a different kind of that's a different kind of listening to a thing. You know, it's like basically uh, it's like basically an informal, you know, uh, audio novel, you know, but uh, but, you know, I am starting to hear from folks who are kind of from the past like that and letting me know that overall is positive. But this particular episode, yeah, aside from those people, I haven't heard from anybody. So I, I myself am really proud of the episode. But, uh, you know, aside from those couple of people, I haven't really heard from anybody. And I know that you post your episode up on, or at least you post notice of your episode on your yeah. Instagram page. Yep. And I know that you have, you know, close personal friends following. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I know that your, your, at least your oldest daughter follows you there. Does yeah. she listen to it? She's under a very strict do not listen policy. Okay. And I don't know that she has or hasn't. However, I'm, 98% certain that she hasn't just because if she has, I'd be able to tell, you know what I mean? Like, especially the last episode. So From the way she looks at you. Yeah. 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 Because she's, she gets very nervous. She knows that I've had, that I have depression and anxiety. She herself uh, struggles a bit with anxiety. I mean, who doesn't in this world right now? Basically everybody has anxiety right now, but she generally speaking has anxiety as well. And, uh, so she, and, you know, the first time that she found out that I have depression, you know, it was, it was a freak out moment for her. And look, I, I've got a depression themed tattoo in a prominent spot on my wrist. And she's old enough to know what that means. You know, my, my semicolon tattoo means that, means that I've had suicidal ideation. So she knows what that means. And that makes her very nervous. And there definitely have been times where we've had to kind of deal with that a little bit. And me kind of, you know, letting her know, look, I have a therapist, I have support, I have all these things. And, and it's not something for you to worry about, you know, but I know that she still struggles with it and kind of worries about it a little bit, but it's something that we talk about. You know, I even once brought her and her sister into a session with my therapist just so they can see who she is and, you know, understand the process that I go through and feel a bit more comfortable about my struggles. You know, but uh, like, I don't know if you were ever kind of cognizant or, or aware of the struggles that your parents went through. I definitely was of my parents and but neither of my parents ever really got help in a way. My dad never saw a therapist. My mom never saw a therapist. So, you know, worrying about them was uh, was really a thing. But I'm fairly certain that she doesn't listen to I'm 98 percent certain she doesn't listen to Sunshine. And I, I'm pretty sure she doesn't listen to jokes, although you know, that one would be less of a problem, obviously, but. That's pretty interesting. Your sisters though, 
they they listen? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. More- so as far as family, I mean, and it's such a deeply personal topic, and you got very – the last, like, 15 minutes of the pod were – were almost confessional. Uh, they yeah. were, well, I, I mean, they were confessional and they were very personal. And you, you got to a point there that raised a very interesting question. I think normal people who, you know, who, what is normal people? That's a stupid thing to say, but people who, <laughs> who, who, um, maybe don't struggle on a regular basis with, um, suicidal ideations or who's never who have never really struggled with it and you know might have fleeting thoughts of like oh well that's a bummer boy you know and don't don't progress through the one to five scale of ideation and action Mm -hmm. i mean when you say i would like to promise that this would never happen but i can't do it right why I mean, I think that's the ultimate question. Why? And you're not answering me. I think I could probably sit down and journal up some understanding of it. But I want to hear it from you because I think your listeners might, might be interested in a deeper um, explanation of why it would be impossible for you to make that promise and, and, and to you know say to your own family who clearly you know love you very much and your friends – that you can't say, well, you know what, I, I'm I'm not going to say that this is I'm doing great, but I can't say it's not going to happen. It's the same thing as making a promise, you know. So I, I have three little sisters. The one who I think understands my struggle with depression the most is the one who has had cancer, and because the parallels between depression and cancer are a hundred, like a hundred percent real. You know, they are so real. It's, it's really fascinating in terms of what it's like to have depression and then what it's like to have cancer. You know, when some, when, when you have cancer and people find that out, it's like you stop being a real person and you start just being this caricature of a person who has cancer. And suddenly people stop treating you like you're a real person with real interests and real needs and real concerns. And, you know, you don't always want to fucking talk about the fact that you have cancer. Uh, and, and, but, but what you can't do is you can't promise you're never going to get it again. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just, you can't promise that. So, and because depression is a disease, you know, it's, it really functions the same way in my mind. You know, I I can't promise that it's not going to come back in the same way that if I was a cancer patient, I couldn't possibly promise that it's not going to come back. You know, shit happens in life, right? Uh, We're in the sixth month of a fucking pandemic where we're stuck indoors and all this stuff. And we're on the precipice of, you know, the most the most uh, consequential election in probably American history, certainly recent American history, maybe even since the beginning of the fucking 1900s. Right. These are all ingredients towards challenging things. Throw a tragedy in there in my life. Right. Throw, you know, God forbid, um, a, a significant death or significant illness or, you know, some kind of a personal problem. And I've got in my brain, as with most people who've got all sorts of mental illnesses and depression being one of them, I have in my brain, like I always say, this built in kind of neural pathway that I'm fighting to, you know, sort of decrease as much as possible, but it's there and it can come back at any time. 
And, you know, nowadays, you know, because of all my hard work and therapy and all the stuff I do, I've got a whole toolbox of shit that I can use to try to help myself. And I'm certainly much healthier than I've been in a really long time. But you throw these little wrinkles in life at me, I, I just can't predict how my brain's going to react at all, you know. So I, I really think it's the same thing. It, it would be like promising that cancer was never going to come back. I just can't do that, you know. But because it's in the brain, it, it kind of fucks with you because it makes people think that, you know, maybe maybe you just can. Like, you can. You can just promise, right? Like, you can just promise. <laughs> Please just promise. Like, it's I'm terrified. Can you just promise? And it's like, no, I'm sorry. You know, I, I can't. I can't. Now, does that mean I wouldn't lie? Like, like if my daughters came to me and said, dad, would you please promise that you'll never hurt yourself? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to promise that I'm never going to hurt myself. I'm just going to lie to them because they don't need to have that stress or anxiety. But is it a real promise? No, it's not a real promise at all. You know, you remember um, uh, Robin Williams did that special where it was like back in the day and you watch like old Robin Williams specials. He always finished on a somber note. Remember that? Yes. Mm -hmm. And there's a special where, where the way he ended was he ended with a conversation between him and his son. Mm -hmm. That was when he was at the Met, I think. Yeah. And his son looks up to him and says, what's going to happen? And he just says, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't know, but let's try to make the most of it in the time being. Right. Well, that dude killed himself, right? Why though? Because he was sick and he didn't want the disease to take him over. So he like made a choice to end his life rather than have this disease, you know, ravage him and put his family through pain. Can I sit here and guarantee that I wouldn't do the same, right? Like maybe I would, I don't know. I don't have a disease that's going to ravage me in front of my friends and family. But if I did, maybe I would do the same. Right. Well, what do you say to people who take what you just said and say, wait a second, there's some inherent contradictions here. You just drew an analogy between having cancer and having suicidal thoughts or depression that would lead you toward um, suicide. And yet you say, well, I don't really have a disease that would uh, justify um, the rationalization or the reasoning behind, say, what Robin Williams did. Even though it's really only speculative, I think we all know that there was definitely a physical disease component to his yep. decision making. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what do you say to people who say, look, it's just kind of make believe. You should be able to control because it's in your head and because you actually know what it is. It's not like cancer where you know you have cancer, right? Right. And, right. and you know you have cancer, but there's nothing you can do about it. Like yeah. other than go to the doctor and hope that the science works it out. Right. Whereas with mental illness, there are literally personal uh, actions that you can take tools. You can implement therapies and there are things that you can do yourself that don't require uh, medical intervention. That's not true of everyone, but you know how much of this, what would you say to people to say some of that, what you're saying is just fiction and you should be able to, make that promise and take steps to proceed to adhere to that promise going forward. I mean, it depends on what kind of a mood I'm in when somebody says something like that. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Your phone I don't know. Right My phone, Siri got, Siri, Siri got, got triggered. Siri yeah, got triggered just then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Siri popped up. I was like, 
Eric, you're being an asshole. I'm, <laughs> I'm, no, no. I, I, I'm asking what I think is a common question because I think you're in a position to answer it. Yeah. Maybe not as you know, with, without you know a, a long list of credentialed initials behind yeah. it, but certainly a life experience as someone who has dealt with people in troubled situations and dealt yourself with yourself yeah. in trouble to address what is a, a, a fundamental question about the nature of, um, about the nature of what might be seen as, uh, struggles with mental health. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's really tough. Right. And, and honestly, it, my answer to the, a person who says, if there's a person who is, kind of trying to talk to me about depression and coming at it from a mindset of it's just in your head, then you kind of have to respond to them. Like, you know, like you respond to anyone who's trying to come at you with an innocent, but ignorant question. You know, I mean, this is just a person who, who maybe cares plenty about me and cares about people who struggle with things but just doesn't understand how it works or why it works, you know? So there's a, there's a really interesting uh, tradition in, in Judaism related to Passover. And I know I'm talking about Judaism right now and I fucking hate religion, especially Judaism at this point. So, but just bear with me for one moment. Um, and uh, part of the Passover Seder, there's this kind of narrative that people talk about where it's the, there are these four children or in the tradition, because it's misogynistic, four sons. And you have um, kind of a wise son, a simple son, a an evil son, and uh, what's the last one? I'm forgetting the last one right now. But the idea is, is that they ask questions and, and then you answer them based off of what they're bringing to the table. So if someone is, you know, just really coming at me from the perspective of just simple ignorance, well, then you kind of have to back up and say, you know, there actually is a difference between different kinds of depression. Everybody in their life is going to experience some kind of depression if you live long enough because shit happens, right? So you have something called situational depression, which is, you know, a parent dies and then for the next year, you're just off, right? Like, um, you know, certain things just look different and feel different. You find yourself doing stuff like just instinctively reaching for the phone and dialing a number and then realize that the person isn't there anymore. And I remember when my grandfather died, my grandma and my parents were going to go to a Broadway show together. And they went online to buy tickets for the show. And she just, by reflex, bought four tickets. But only three were going. And when she realized that she bought four tickets... She broke down because she had done this thing so reflexively that it didn't, it didn't occur to her that that had to be different. And they ended up not going to the show because how the fuck do you go to a show with one empty seat next to you? Right? Like that's like, so that's a certain type of mindset where it's like, is somebody going to really say to my grandmother in that moment? Well, how come you didn't just remember that your husband was dead? (laughs) Right? Like nobody would do that because that's, they understand that she's in a place of deep grief and mourning, and that's a pretty natural place to be. 
But for some reason, it's very hard to understand that that type of, you know, uh, challenge can extend beyond moments like that. And even outside of moments like that, right, where um, where just the brain does things and, and a person doesn't know how to quite respond. So for some people, depending on where they're coming from and depending on the state of mind that I'm in at that place, what I'll do is just patiently explain to them, you know, this is an illness. It's different. I can't just get up and move. I can't just, you know, necessarily do the things that I need to do to be as healthy as I can be at any given moment. And at every moment, there's different options of how I can approach it. But I can't guarantee that I'm always going to respond in the right way for every moment because it's it's the brain. Right. It, it impacts everything. You know, so like when I'm when I'm spiraling, which is the worst, it's totally awful, you know, where I, I can't focus on a single thought at any time, you know, more than a second. Um, the whole the, the world is closing in on me. I can barely walk, let alone breathe. And often it's in that moment where I can go, you know, two, three, four, five, like very quickly, because I just want the brain to like, those are the most dangerous moments for me, because those are the moments where I'm really irrational. The brain isn't going to stop and I want it to stop. And the only way I can think to make it stop sometimes is to put a bullet in there. Right. Um, and so that's kind of where that's at. But now I have a tool where I can go and grab some ice from my freezer and put it on my face and um, induce the diver's reflex, which is like rebooting your brain, basically. And all of a sudden, I'm not having those thoughts anymore because I'm not having any thoughts except for, oh, fuck, that's cold. <laughs> right. So that's like a tool that I have that I can use. But if I didn't have that tool, you know, I'd be putting a knife to my skin. And if I wasn't putting a knife to my skin, then I'd be putting a gun to my mouth. Right. Um, and that's just that's just kind of what that is. And if a person looks at me and can't understand it, even then, then what I try to do is just understand that, look, it's scary. Like it's really, really scary. And if no one has ever had cancer, you know, it's cancer is the scariest thing ever. And if you've never had a mental illness, a mental illness is in a way even scarier than that, because it's hard to conceive of sort of losing yourself, losing your identity through an illness, you know? And uh, yeah, so it just depends. Sometimes people have people come up to me with issues like that, you know, like um, so one of the last sermons I gave as a rabbi was a sermon about depression. And uh, I was still working as a rabbi and I was in the throes of it, like really, really in the throes of it. I was medicated. I was a mess. And I gave a sermon about that experience. And everybody heard it from their perspective. And I did have congregants come up afterwards and not say it to me, but say it to other people, including leadership of the congregation and say, are we sure that Josh is an appropriate leader because he has that challenge, right? Like, can a person with depression be a leader? And I think, honestly, the only answer to a person who has that perspective is go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, well, fuck you and die. <laughs> maybe, or maybe there's a, maybe there's just a departure of language there, or a departure of philosophy there. Yeah. Because I wanted to ask you also as a final question about the religious aspect of it. You're a guy who's you know, in you know, a rabbi for many years, 
uh, also you had exposure in the Navy as a chaplain to mm-hmm. all, t- all different religions. And so right. it, if a religious um, organization or for, you know, religious leadership comes and says, well, is this person fit because they're suffering from depression? Isn't that essentially saying if you were truly committed to the precepts of this religious, um, of this religious order of the doctrine of the religion, then it would be able to resolve these problems for you. And is that not something that people have relied on historically prior to the uh, psychiatry and psychotherapy movements that have made it more of a, a layperson's field sure. of whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, well, uh, first thing, there's a lot of different ways to kind of answer it. First thing I would say to a person who questions about uh, whether or not a depressed person can be a leader is um, I would I would remind them yeah. that probably our greatest president in history was famously <laughs> severely depressed and that's abraham lincoln you know you you didn't have a more depressed president than abraham lincoln and um and it's really well documented in terms of what that man went through and his the challenges that he faced and i really wonder if he wasn't assassinated what how how his life would have ended you know what what would have happened there and i wonder if he would have if he would have killed himself because of how completely deeply depressed that he was. But look at religion at its absolute best, when religion is functioning at its highest sort of power and quality, what it does is through ritual and through metaphor, attempt to help people to deal with stuff, right? It attempts to comfort people and make them feel better about life. That's what religion kind of, that's sort of what it's supposed to do, right? So you maybe believe in an afterlife. And so suddenly death isn't scary anymore. Through religion, you find your way towards purpose, and purpose is probably the best gateway out of depression or the best kind of empowering technology that can be utilized to face depression, right, is some type of purpose. Because that then becomes your motivation for, you know, finding the strength to do the hard work that it requires to find healing and stability and, you know, whatever, right? I mean, that's sort of how that works. And not just that, but very specific things like, for example... There's this passage in the Bible where Jacob is saddling a horse, you know, saddling a, a, a donkey to move out. And he does it backwards. You know, it just kind of happens backwards. And the rabbis in the Talmud ask, why did he do that like that? Like, why in the Bible does it describe that he, the way that he sort of set that up isn't typically how you're supposed to do that? Why would it specifically say that? And what they answer is, is because that's, that was the day that Jacob became older than his father was when his father died. Isn't that interesting? Right? Like, like this is an experience that a lot of people don't quite understand until they get there, but I've seen it a hundred times. I'm not there yet myself, but like my father died when he was almost, my father was 64 when he died. He would have been 65 a couple months after he died. And I know that if I outlive him in terms of age, the second I turn 65, that's going to freak me the fuck out. 
my my grandfather lived with that for almost his entire you know senior citizen life because his father died in his 40s and so as soon as my grandfather was a day older than his father was when he died he was looking over the horizon expecting to die at any moment yeah, that, that's like that's like a very real psychological thing that almost everybody goes through if they have the opportunity to arrive at an age where they're older than their parent ever was. And, um, and nowadays you, you, you see people, you know, really still dealing with it today. I'm not certain. I mean, I'm not like an expert on the DSM five or whatever. I don't know that like, that's the thing, but it's a common enough human experience that everybody sort of goes through it. Right. So yeah, in two ways, one religion kind of provides for you with uh, some sense of purpose and connectivity. And two, you know, you sometimes find in religion, these very specific conversations about the types of, you know, the types of mental challenges that a person can face throughout their life. Right. So in that sense, there's something really powerful about that. So for sure, religion can be a gateway to find healing. Um, it was never going to be that way for me because even though I was a rabbi, I was never really that interested in ritual at all. So ritual didn't provide that for me. And I lost my sense of um, connection to the purpose that Judaism provides. And I began to believe that it was more problematic than helpful. And so at that point, it really wasn't going to be helpful for me at all after that. You know, um, it just it just wasn't. You know, I, I always really valued the theologies that have street value, you know, when you can like really apply something to your everyday life. But it was also I, I you know, I find certain aspects of it so highly problematic that I, I, I had to walk away because it wasn't helping me at all, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's and and I think that maybe that was the manifestation of uh, the, dep the the manifestation of the depression. Perhaps telegraph that to your congregational leadership, and maybe and maybe. maybe they thought, well, this this clearly, if if he were doing this right, then he wouldn't be suffering in this way and wouldn't share with share it with us in this way. The the ritual, the metaphor, the religion itself would be able to handle that. Right. Right. I mean, look at, I, you know, I, uh, I, I ultimately walked away from it because I wanted to, you know, nobody forced me out of the rabbinate. I could have easily continued being a rabbi if I wanted to, there's no question. And I didn't want to anymore because of the position. And I also didn't want to anymore because you know, I think that, and Judaism is not supposed to function this way, but I think in a lot of ways, many religions of the West have sort of been Catholicized, if that's a word, <laughs> in that, I mean, the Catholic Church is, is a living embodiment of Christ on earth. That's what it's supposed to be. And a priest is like a consigliere to that, Right. So a priest in a Catholic in the Catholic mindset is an extra special dude with extra special powers and extra special responsibilities that are laden upon him. And I mean, I would argue that that's highly problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. But rabbis today are sort of priestized in that way, 
you know, where the word rabbi itself means teacher and rabbis in the earliest time were, you know, teachers, judges, community leaders, things like that. But we weren't necessarily projected as these magical people. And that it didn't take long and soon we were, but we necessarily we weren't necessarily in the beginning projected as these magical people. We weren't intercessors between people and God. You know, you, everyone is sort of responsible for their own relationship to God and rabbis can teach the tradition to help a person be the, have their own relationship to God. Whereas a priest by design is an intercessor between people and God. And uh, um, I, I understood as a rabbi that I was being treated as that intercessor. And I didn't, that wasn't going to be a healthy position for me for, for much longer, you know. So that, that, was, that was really why I had to walk away because they were projecting a certain amount of like special powers onto me that just weren't, weren't very healthy or good, you know? So that's kind of what, what that was about. But, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, last question True. triggered by what you just said. Yep. Uh, that was supposed to be the last question, but this last one is actually <laughs> triggered by something you said. Don't you think that when you get to be 65, your dad will have wanted you to be 65? No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. But like my, my ability to live and be alive, that's got, I mean, that's up to me, not the memory of my dad. You know, I love my dad. I, I wish he, I wish he took care of himself better. I wish he was still alive today. There's no reason why he shouldn't be still alive today. You know, if he would have done different things in his life, he'd, he'd be still alive today. I don't have any question in my mind about that. And so, you know, I mean, as weird as this sounds and loving him as much, you know, if he, if he, if his ghost came to me, you know, and said, don't you think you should be able to live to 65? I'd probably be like, fuck off. It's up to me. You know, that's my, that's my choice. If I want to, if I want to do that or not, you know, and it's up to me to kind of navigate that and sort of, and sort of find my way through it, you know? Um, yeah, man, I, I, I don't need anyone else to tell me that, you know, I should want to live to 65 because I'd love to live to a hundred, you know, like I want to maximize my years and maximize my joy and maximize my health and maximize my happiness and all that stuff. I mean, you know, I'm actively searching for a mate, you know, at 45 years old, uh, I don't want to only be married for 20 years. I want to be married for 40 years which means I got to live to 85 at least, you know, um, that's, that's kind of like the mindset and that that's what I want. And I would love to be able to, you know, send depression into permanent remission and never have to like deal with this shit ever again. Like that would be awesome. And maybe I will one day be able to, you know, look at my therapist and both of us agree, let's do like a one month check-in now and we'll just see each other every, every month and just kind of see how we're going. And then maybe after that, I graduate to once every two months checking in with her to see what's going on. And maybe at some point I graduate to checking in with my therapist once a year, you know, but like, I mean, my mom should live a really long time. My mom is one of the healthiest people I know. And I'd be shocked if she didn't live to, to triple figures because of her health and because of her lifestyle and because of her choices and because of her mind and because of her genes. Right. I mean, the women in my family tend to live a really long time. So I'd be shocked my mom didn't live to triple figures. But if everything goes according to the correct order of things, you know, she'll pass away before me. And what will happen when I'm in that space? You know, will, will I dive back down into depression in the way that I did before when my dad died? 
you know, will that be um, another catalyst into a deep dive of things? Maybe, you know, I, I just don't know and I can't predict it. And if I was to sit here and say, you know, absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm done with it. It's never going to happen to me again. Then I think I'm setting myself up for failure in a way because I'm closing myself off to the possibilities of, of that happening, you know, whereas if I say here in all honesty, you know, uh, look, I, I, I could absolutely send my depression into remission and it could absolutely come back harder than it ever has before. And I have more tools now than I ever did. But if I say, you know, it's never going to happen, it's just not going to happen, then, then how am I setting myself up for success there? You know, whereas if I say it could absolutely happen and I need to keep my eye open for it, then I'm walking around with my eyes open and I'm that much more prepared. And when I see the earliest signs of it, then I'll be able to, you know, recognize things and take steps to deal with it as quickly as possible. You know, my dad, when he died, ultimately he died from leukemia and it was a certain type of leukemia where it created and threw clots. So he died of a heart attack, but he really died from leukemia. But the thing was, was that we actually didn't know he had leukemia until after he died. Like they, you know, it was, they did an autopsy and it was the postmortem. Like he died before the results came in basically. And they informed us after he died that he had this certain type of leukemia. And, um, if he'd have taken him, if he had done a better job taking care of himself, then he would have noticed earlier that he had it. And if he would have noticed earlier that he had it, then he would have been able to take steps earlier to do something about it. Right. So me taking care of myself means that I have to take time to recognize that this is a thing that I was diagnosed with. I was medicated for it. I take it really seriously. I see my therapist once a week. We work really hard on rewiring my brain. Um, and I've made so much progress. It's, it's, I amaze myself with how much progress I've made. And at the same time, a part of that progress means having the skill set and ability to recognize, oh, 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 okay, that, that right there, that was a feeling that I just had. And I know what that is. And, and this is early in the process. So let me get to work on this right quick before it gets more serious. Right. So like in the, in a weird way, you know, if my kids ask me, can I please promise them that I'll never hurt myself? Then yeah, I'm, I'm just going to say, yeah, I'm never going to hurt myself because I don't want them to have that anxiety. But if I'm talking to a, a close friend or, or, you know, um, myself in a way, I'm actually doing more harm to myself than good by saying, yeah, I can guarantee to myself it's never going to happen. It's much more responsible for me to have this semicolon on my wrist that's a constant permanent reminder of, hey, here's the thing that I've had. Here's um, a mindset that I've been in like multiple times. And I need to know that it's, I need to always know that it's there so that when it pops up, I'm not closed off that that's what it was. And then I can then turn around and do the shit that I have to do to sort of make it happen. You know, it's like, you know, it's like anything else, right? Like it's, re it's really like anything else. I mean, I'm like drawing political parallels in my mind right now <laughs> as we talk about this, like, you know, um, you want to vote Trump again another four years and you think it's just going to be fine. You know, are you out of your mind? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not, it's not, you got to be realistic here about stuff. 
You know what I mean? Like if you're not realistic, then you're not really setting yourself up for any type of success in any direction. So it's that realism, I think, that in in many ways is my gateway and sort of like a guarantor that I won't that I won't actually do it. But like, is there any such thing as a hundred percent guarantor? You know, and the answer is no, right? Like it's just no. So I don't know. I think that I think that this has been a good follow up to a hell of an episode. And I think you, you know, we could go on and on, ask more questions. No reason for that. I think you can revisit this anytime you want. I think that it's uh, clearly very um, lucidly thought out by you. And we know there's a lot of scholarship out there. Yep. Maybe we can point some people in the right direction. Yeah. And, um, you know, that I appreciate the thoughtfulness. I wanted to just stop in and talk about it a little bit. And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what the next uh, sunshine is. I think you're going to have an Andre piece come up. Yep. Andre and, piece coming up. You know, what's, yeah. uh, you know what's, you know what's interesting? Kind of just as a last point to throw at you there. Probably my, sure. my biggest anxiety about sharing stuff about depression, and same thing with cancer is that um, just because I have depression doesn't mean I'm not a big giant goofball who loves to just laugh and be silly and um, find the crazy joy in life. And you know what I, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a really like having depression. You're not Eeyore. I'm not Eeyore. I'm not like um, Mr. Somber USA. Do you know, do you know what I mean? That's like my, it's funny. That's like my, in a weird way, that's like my biggest concern is that somebody will hear it and then just assume that I'm like sad all the time. When the truth is most of the time I just walk around fucking cracking myself up um, and cracking other people up. Do you know what I mean? But I think in a way it's the, it's the, it's in some ways they're kind of part and parcel of the same thing. It's like the depression that sort of allows me to, to do that. But, Anyway, yeah, this is, I mean, look, this is what this podcast is about, right? It's all conversations like this, and it does happen to be Suicide Awareness Month. And I'm still trying to convince you that we should do an jo- episode of jokes uh, where um, we talk about jokes about suicide, because I got a bunch that I think would be really interesting. So let's see if we can move on that. But uh, yeah, happy to follow up. And if you or Robbie or anyone else's follow-up questions, let's do it. There could be an addendum to the addendum. Okay. All right. Appendix B. All Appendix. right. Yep. All right. Appreciate it, Josh. We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, man.